Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you. The Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. wickingvicar.com. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 27 on monastic vows. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Brian Flammy. He is pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Concord Matters. Hey, it's great to be back. Hey, it's great to have you. And today to talk about monastic vows. And you and I were kind of talking right before we started to uh, record here today that this is obviously a lengthy article. We've seen this in these abuse articles that, you know, it, Really, what has happened every week in these abuse articles is the Lutherans have a lot to say on these matters. Obviously, this is kind of what started the whole Reformation, where these things going on in the church that obscured Christ and everything else and needed to be addressed, and the Lutherans uh, certainly have a lot to say. And so we've kind of been rushed and been unable to make it through the entire article. So I think today we're just not even going to try. We'll certainly pull some things out. There's certainly a lot to discuss in here. But before we even get into any reading of it at all, again, as you and I were talking before the show here today, in one sense, we all kind of know what monasticism is, and we maybe have a sense of what monastic vows are. But at the same time, it's also something that we really don't know a lot about because, yeah, there's still some around today, but it's not really a system that's entrenched in a part of our culture that's kind of a regular thing that we encounter. And so we maybe have an idea of it, but we don't really understand it, especially what it was at the time of the Reformation. So I think even before we kind of get into talking about what the Lutherans put forward here in this article about the abuse of monastic vows, it's kind of good to just lay a foundation of, well, what is monasticism and what are these monastic vows that they're addressing here in this article? Go ahead, Pastor Flynn. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, as especially Lutherans, have a caricature of monasticism because we read about it all the time in the Book of Concord and in Luther's writings, and we think we understand it. But until you've like really talked to an abbot or have done quite a bit of reading and research on the history of Christian monasticism, 
it's really hard to take in how big a deal this is for the church for many of its centuries. Just to give you an idea, according to many scholars, it was after the time of Christ, you know, in the infancy of the church, that everybody was pretty much a monk. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that everybody lived rigorously, that is, strictly, according to Jesus's commands when it came to being poor. That wasn't taken to be figurative. That was taken to be literal. Like everybody had to be poor to have everything in common is the idea, according to these scholars, that the Christians weren't just poor, but they also practiced absolute chastity. And if they were virgins, they were encouraged strictly to remain virgins, you know. And so that's the idea. In the first two centuries of the church, the Christians would not marry or be given in marriage because they were desiring to be like the angels already on this earth. And then when it came to obedience, then just as the disciples were absolutely obedient to Christ, never mind, you know, the, the stories of the Gospels or the disciples were probably not all that obedient to Christ. Nevertheless, right, the, the idea is like just as the disciples were obedient to Christ, so also the very earliest Christians were absolutely obedient to their bishop. And it was out of this rigorous, extreme conformity to the commands of Jesus to live a radically different life from the rest of the world, from the rest of Roman and Greek society, that you had the Christian community as a whole just absolutely noticeably different, you know? They didn't eat meat. Why? Because all of the meat was given in sacrifice to idols. Therefore, the Christians ate only vegetables. You know, that's the idea. They didn't participate in any way, shape, or form in public life. They didn't serve in office as a governor or magistrate. They didn't serve in the, in the legions. Why? Because public participation, uh, civic engagement, was engaging with Satan's power structure in this world, right? And so to keep themselves untainted from Satan's power in this world, they just completely disengaged and separated themselves and kept to themselves. Now, it probably should be worth saying this. There's not a lot of evidence for these scholarly opinions about the very, very earliest years of the Christian church. Uh, just recently, I was doing some research into, you know, Christian participation in the Roman legions in the first two centuries. And it was asserted by many fine scholars, uh, especially over the past 200 years, that just as Tertullian argued that it was impossible for a Christian to be a soldier and to be baptized at the same time. Uh, this must have meant that there were no such things as Christian soldiers until basically Constantine baptized the army <laughs> and the Roman state. But the thing is, again, these scholarly opinions and arguments aren't really based on evidence. They're based on speculation about the nature of how they read the gospel and also the reality of monastic groups starting in around the 300s, like the 380 time period. Uh, monasticism started out in two basic groups. The first were the absolute ascetics. There's like a special word for it. They're eremetics or something like that. Yeah, that's right. The eremitical monks were the ones like St. Anthony who withdrew into the desert and their isolation from the world was so extreme that they wouldn't even see each other face to face except when they gathered together for mass on Sunday. However, because this kind of monasticism was seen to be extreme by the folks who were apparently, uh, you know, desiring to become 
separate from the world in an absolute sense. This was even seen as extreme to them. Uh, another kind of monasticism came alongside that, and that was the communal, family-oriented, or synobitical monasticism. This was championed by St. Basil, and what he did was he made sure that the people, yes, separated themselves from the world, but they lived in community together as Christians. And they would work together, they would pray together, but they wouldn't do so apart from one another. And uh, this kind of monasticism, the family or the communal kind of monasticism, ended up becoming prominent in both the Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. The reason for that was, well, St. Basil said, it's hard to practice Christian charity when you're living by yourself in a cave. <laughs> now, that's, that's a fair point, right? And so this kind of monasticism really took off and was popularized in the West under St. Benedict's rule. Uh, he gave extremely detailed instructions for monasticism in the West, down to who should be admitted into the family community, the fact that living together as a family, they shouldn't be spread around in different parts of the world, but actually living together under the same roof, so to speak, in one place at any given time. And this became programmatic for monasticism in the West. The thing that we notice, both according to the scholars that give us this supposed story of monasticism before the 300s AD, and what is certainly important to those practitioners of monasticism after that point in history, is that those people who are monks and later nuns, those people who separate themselves from the world, are seen as the genuine Christians. The genuine Christians. You see, the idea here is that as Christianity gained popularity, especially after the reign of Constantine and the legalization of Christianity, as Christianity gained popular acceptance, it turned out that the extreme commands that came from Jesus concerning, you know, love for your enemy, let's say, or that you had to turn the other cheek if you're attacked, that you must be poor in spirit and yet rich in the kingdom of heaven. The, these were seen as such extreme demands that it was accepted that even though people wanted to become Christians, they couldn't actually become Christians because they weren't able to keep Jesus's extreme commands that pushed people towards, well, three things. And this is the development of the oaths around these three most important things, these lifestyles that make up Christianity, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so at that point, Christianity broke off into two different forks, we might say. On the one hand, you had the Christians who wanted to remain rigorously true to everything Jesus had said, not in a figurative sense, but literally. And because of that reason, they could be more certain and sure of their place in heaven and salvation. And so these would be the monastic orders, the monks and the nuns. And then you had the secular or the lay Christians who were not able to, to hold to Jesus's extreme commands. And so they contented themselves with an outward observance of what was called the precepts or the Ten Commandments. They, even though they entered into a Christian fellowship and community through baptism, which conveyed a kind of grace to them to begin their Christian journey, they were not by any means as sure of their Christianity and or final destiny, whether they be you know, saved and, and admitted into the company of Christ and the saints in heaven, or if they were in fact uh, doomed to failure because they had not abided by Jesus' commands well enough. Now, uh, Sean, I'm sure you know this, <laughs> that this is really a profound confusion 
of law and gospel. Uh, to speak to these 19th and 20th century scholars who looked at the pristine state of Christianity in the early church, if you were to ask them, what is the gospel for these early Christians? They would say something like, love not only with your actions, but with your heart and with your mind and with your desires, you know, to love God absolutely and to love your neighbor as yourself absolutely and purely. See, for them, the gospel is in fact something that, that the Christian must do. It is an action to be performed. And this understanding was indeed present in the early church, where from an early century, um, probably around the time of the popularization of monasticism, this Christian rigorist movement supplanted the original definition of the gospel with human works. And they turned Jesus, and as the Lutherans like to say, into a new Moses, into a second lawgiver. Instead of giving the easier outward law of the Ten Commandments, he gave what were called the evangelical councils, which are much more demanding because they go beyond what's on the surface of a person and into his mind, his heart, and his will, and demand absolute conformity to the councils in those inner places of a person. And of course, you can understand how difficult it would be at that point to say with certainty that I am a Christian and I am 100% going to go to heaven. Really? You know, one of these uh, people would say, have you actually been able to perfect yourself not only outwardly, but inwardly? Uh, If you haven't, if you haven't like forsaken your your husband or wife or kids or family, if you haven't forsaken your community, if you haven't forsaken even the basic comforts of creaturely existence, then you are not yet working your way towards spiritual perfection, which is what, in fact, God desires for all you know, to be accepted into his presence, into heaven. This rhetoric, by the way, continues to be used, not just among a certain class of like scholars who are friendly towards Roman Catholicism, but even by Roman Catholics today. There's all kinds of literature, pamphlets, propaganda that are out there that are trying to sell monasticism to you, a faithful Christian. Uh, when you go, when you look at monasticism, you see that you're, you're, uh, Google search page, or perhaps you're more discerning, and so you don't use Google, but DuckDuckGo or Brave or whatever, and your, and your search results just pile up with all of these invitations to come to these, A, read about monasticism from a Roman Catholic source, and then B, come and, and attend a, a series of lectures on monasticism by your local abbot <laughs> in a community that's very close to you, or at some kind of like Roman Catholic theological institute who wants to encourage lay people, and even non-Catholics to pursue this mode of life because this is, in fact, the genuine course towards, you know, the purity of soul, the perfection of a person, and salvation. Yeah, as you describe all of that, what hits me is that it sounds kind of like a couple other things that we hear about, right, and know about. Uh, You got kind of the Jewish religious leaders that were around at the time of Jesus, Right, you see this especially with the Pharisees and so forth, and their Pharisaic laws, and you know, kind of the obedience to God, and all of that kind of rigorous lifestyle, if you will, and the pushing of that. You, know, you kind of get echoes of that kind of playing out in the way monasticism at least developed. And then maybe on the other side, and ironically, it's like the church body that's growing in America <laughs> are the Amish, right? 
Uh, you know, they used to be this obscure thing, and they are still kind of on the grand scheme of things, I suppose, a more obscure group that's out there. But they're actually growing, and they live in very intentional community and, you know, those sorts of things. And so you kind of see these kind of happening on both sides there. And there's a part of me that says, would that Christians would take their faith so seriously that they would want to rigorously live the Christian life, right? Now, as you correctly hit, of course, you got to rightly distinguish law and gospel. I mean, this is like a Lutheran move here. It seems so obvious to us. Uh, and yet, even as you reflect on, you know, kind of the tension of what this is to live this and so forth, it's even within me at times, you know, as, as much as I like to talk about the right distinction of law and gospel, that, uh, you know, you can fall off to a very legalistic kind of side of this, right? And really beat yourself up even when you fail to do that and strive all the harder. I mean, it's just this kind of tension is within all of us, right? And so you're kind of balancing a couple things here, right? You, you got the good thing that it is to want to live an intentional Christian community separate from the world, in the world, but not of the world, you know, that kind of thing. And yet the fact that that just never goes well when kind of pushed to its extreme or, or you know, uh, it, it just, it tends to fall apart pretty quickly in whatever group that you have. I mean, and you had, you know, not just the Pharisees, you had you know, even kind of the other group of early monasticism that you see had this within the Jews as well, the Essenes and so forth, who lived out in the desert. So you kind of see these things perpetuated throughout time in some sense, right? I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. In fact, in fact, you have some of these same scholars who argue hard for the original state of Christianity as monasticism. They'll make some pretty wild claims like, you know, John the Baptist was himself an Essene. Which, from the documentary evidence of the Holy Scriptures, is an absurdity. <laughs> there is no evidence of that whatsoever. He came from a Levitical household. His life was in Judea and around Jerusalem, right? It was not out in the deserts near the Dead Sea. That's not where it was at all. Instead, every sort of snapshot we see of John's you know, infant in the womb life, even before we see him preaching and teaching on the, on the shore of the, of the Jordan River, is in the day-to-day -day life of Jews in Judea, you know? And now that's really important for us to take to heart because, hey, I get it. The world is corrupt and it seems to become more and more corrupt as the days continue, you know, as the, as the time grows late and as the time for Jesus to come back is drawing closer and closer. And it seems like even just sort of casual participation in the world taints us and makes us somehow less Christian. Like, you know, like you would go to your favorite coffee shop. You want to get just a cold coffee drink on a hot summer afternoon. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Except for there's this big, you know, gay pride flag flying outside the coffee shop. You go inside and there's a big poster saying that we give 10% of our proceeds to Planned Parenthood. And you understand this to be, oh yeah, so they hate God's institution of the family, and they also hate babies in the womb, even to the point of murder. Is this really a place where I want to spend my money? And so you decide to go to the coffee shop across the street, and guess what? They're doing pretty much the same thing. It turns out they're morally competing with one another because it turns out the way that Americans are morally active is through their dollars. It's through spending. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> and so every time you go out of your house and you put down cash, to get some sort of service from somebody in the world, there's a good chance that you're enabling somebody to live a lifestyle that's explicitly against 
what God teaches in his word. And so you could see it where, you know, the, the reaction to this would be, well, then we need to, if we can't participate in this community because we're enabling sin, then we need to make our own community withdraw from the world and live the cenobitical lifestyle, this kind of uh, Christian monasticism where we have forsaken everything in the world so that we can purify ourselves, live rigorously Christian lives, and so on. The only problem is, like you said before, Sean, this never ends well. I hear Lutherans desiring this from time to time, even to the point where like men's groups, I don't know, like, you know how Jonathan Fisk has like a Discord channel where people like jump on there and they talk back and forth with each other? Do you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea how to find this thing, but I know it's out there. And I know that some of the, the men on this Discord channel have banded together and they've come up with a group called the Sons of Solomon. You've heard of this before, haven't you? Are you a member of the Sons of Solomon, Sean? I have to ask. I am not. I am not <laughs> that, that level, no. This is, okay, so the Sons of Solomon, this is really a, a commendable thing on this level that they want to encourage Christian men in their vocations of being sons and brothers and fathers, of being hearers of the gospel, faithful laymen in the congregation, and pastors and preachers of the gospel and leaders in the church. Uh, that's really, really fantastic. The only thing is, and this is the reason why I never joined, was that when I was talking to what are the guys who was heading this thing up, it came out that he was requiring various oaths, and oaths were required for those who wanted to go from the outside, right, being outside of the Sons of Solomon, to being in this group and recognized as one of the brothers of Sons of Solomon. And when that became clear, like I had to make various commitments about adopting a certain kind of prayer habit every day. Now, prayer habit every day is, is good. Every Christian should pray every day, right? But to say that I'm going to commit to this manner of prayer at this specific time using these particular words, I thought back to Article 27 of the Augsburg Confession. I said to myself, now, wait a second. It seemed like we that vows had been warned against before in the wisdom of the Lutheran Church, you know? And I'm not saying that what they're doing is like exactly the same as monastic vows, but at the same time, you can see the purpose why they put it forward, and it has a lot to do with this enforced Christian rigor, right? We see that men are not living as Christians in the world. This bothers us, and now we're going to make men take vows saying that I will commit more so than I have before, I'm going to commit now to live as a Christian, praying in this way, having a crucifix on my possession at any given time. And there's like some other rule that they have. Like you always have to have like a theological book on your person at any given time. You know, there are a handful of rules like this. Again, like I get it. Your desire is to separate yourself from the world. You're even going to make a special commitment to do so. And I think that Again, it's commendable to say this is how God has called me to live as a Christian, right? But there's a real danger here. And this is what Philip Melanchthon and those who are behind the Augsburg Confession want us to know. There's a real danger of supplanting the centrality of the gospel, of justification by faith alone, with these various man-made rules, even if those man-made rules appear to be supporting a, what might be called a Christian life. Because really, what's at the center of Christianity, your Christianity, what's at the center of your hope 
Is it that Jesus has died for you and has cleansed you of all your sins and by God's grace and his grace alone that you have access, complete and total access to the Father? Or is your Christianity that you need to become more perfect in following Jesus's commands, not only to do what is righteous outwardly, but to bring your heart into absolute conformity with love, love towards God and love towards your neighbor, right? Without the proper distinction of law and gospel, you can't answer that question, which is why so many other Christians outside of the Lutheran church and our Roman Catholic friends are a little bit, I would say, confused. You know, they're just ignorant. They don't understand that that the gospel is good news and the glad tidings are not, hey, Jesus has come and has given you something that's harder to do. You know, the good news is that Jesus has died and is raised from the dead for you. And what does God require of you now that Jesus has done this? Nothing. Only to receive the word with trust, which is what we call faith. You know, the passive trust, which is saving faith. And to hear the word, to rejoice in the word, this is at the center and the heart of our Christian life. And because of that, even though we can talk and we should talk about, you know, Christians desiring to live a more Christian life than they had been before, Uh, We have to always make sure that that's never going to take over what is central for Christians. And that is what the Bible preaches. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus does not lay down a rule of faith. And what do we mean by that? Like in the monastic orders, they have various rules which organize the day-to-day, minute-to-minute lives of people. Instead, Jesus says, you know, your faith has saved you. (laughs) That's what he says. He gives himself into death. He presents himself before sinners as sacrifice on the cross. And he says to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is at the center and the heart of our Christian faith. And with that understanding, I believe that we can return to the question of, then, now that I am justified by grace through faith, and this is what it means to be Christian, how is it that I am to live as someone who is baptized, somebody who trusts in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection for my salvation. But that conversation, and this is something we'll talk about on the other side of the break, I'm sure, that conversation is going to sound very, very different than this push towards monasticism of taking special oaths to separate yourself from the world. Instead, the the Lutheran answer to this question is going to be much more like, well, how do I live in love towards God and love towards my neighbor in the world, even in the institutions God has created to support life in this world. Yeah, we do need to take a break here. And I want to pick that up on the other side of the break. And I also want to pick up specifically as you bring in the talk of the vows there. And and I just apologize. I'm not really all that familiar with the Sons of Solomon group and things like that and what the nature of those vows are or anything. And so I can't speak too much at length of that. But I think it raises an interesting point that You know, as you think about even like those in the military take an oath, right? Or we as pastors take, we'll commonly call them ordination vows. And and maybe as Lutherans, we don't actually technically, and sometimes it's just kind of, you know, following the common vernacular, but we clearly make some promises, right? Yeah. Obviously, we take marriage vows and those sorts of things. So, So there are vows that we commonly take all the time. And especially as men, I think it's good that we be challenged. Yeah. To say, yes, I'm going to commit myself to doing this if it's a good and godly thing. And again, I just don't know enough about that Sons of Solomon group to know what the nature of those are. But, you know, I can see from the outside 
of saying, you know, well, maybe there is some benefit in that and saying, yeah, be a man, do these things that are good to be a Christian man. And yet there is this tension because again, as it points out right at the beginning of the article, which we didn't read, but we'll at least cite here is that, you know, these vows get corrupted, discipline gets corrupted. And so you kind of double down on it and becomes harder and so forth. So anyway, we need to dig down into this on the other side of the break and talk about the nature of the vows, how we live that baptized life, being justified by Christ, all those things uh, that you wonderfully set up there for us, Pastor Brian Flammy, who is our guest today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The life of the Christian church is a life in exile. We are grieved by various trials. False teachers and their deceptive teachings wage war against the truth. How can we believe and live as faithful and joyful Christians while we sojourn here? This is Pastor Timothy Apple, host of Sharper Iron. We're starting a new series, The Imperishable Inheritance. We will be going through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Join us every weekday morning at 8 on KFUO to rejoice in the imperishable inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Brian Flammy. He is pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. And Pastor Flammy, just before the break there, you set up this thing that, well, first you said, you know, we're going to talk about how we live in the baptized life, but you brought out this nature of vows. And even within Lutheranism and so forth, that at times we encourage the taking of vows. And I brought in that we see all sort of O's and vows all over the place throughout our secular society and within the church. I didn't even mention, you know, we make confirmands take vows. And there's certainly a lot of thought that I think that needs to go into that. You know, asking a junior hire to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from this confession in church. Yeah, that's true. That's the Christian faith. But can, and, and again, because this we, we're not reading the article today, but if we were, you would be hearing about how, you know, these vows are kind of forced on the, the young people who aren't really prepared to make those vows. And so, you know, I think there are contemporary applications for us to even consider, is it right for us to have junior hires standing before the altar and making these serious vows oh, yeah. and pledging themselves to this life? I just think that we need to, you know, delve down a little deeper into considering the nature of vows because that's really what's tied up in this, you know, it's the monastic vows that they're taking issue with here in this article. And so what's the nature of vows and, and how do we wrestle with this? And how do we, how do we come to a place where we understand that, yeah, vows, owes can be good, especially, you know, we want our military people to be faithful in their service when they take their oath, right? We want pastors to be faithful to the vows that they make in their ordination. And yet at the same time that, you know, kind of forming these groups where we force other vows on and so forth. I, I think we just need to delve deeper into this. So get us into it, Pastor Flammy. I'm just throwing a whole whole spiderweb mess here at you and, and sort it out and, and lead us through it here. Yeah, no, that's really fantastic. One of the ways in which the sacred people, you know, the people who are following the evangelical councils, as they were called, separated themselves from the mass of more secular people who were in Christianity, who were baptized, who were not on the road to perfection, they took three oaths, of course, for poverty, they would own nothing, chastity, they would be absolutely chaste, not be sexually active in a family having children, right? And be absolutely obedient to their superior, whether that be to an abbot or to their bishop. 
And these oaths separated the clergy class, those who pray, from the class of those who ruled and fought and the class of people who worked. And so that was what was known as, leading up to the time of the Reformation, as the medieval three estates. And it is a rather ancient idea that society is divided up into three distinct portions, those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. And those who pray, what separated them essentially from those who fight and those who work was that they had taken a vow to do the work of God as opposed to these other two kinds of works of fighting and laboring in a field, let's say. Their work was to pray. And how were they going to pray? They were going to pray through living an absolutely impoverished, chaste, and obedient life. To the point when their abbot said, uh, you know, following St. Benedict's rule, that we're going to pray the canonical hours seven times a day, they would. They'd wake up after midnight and pray. They'd wake up again you know, before the sun came up and pray, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, these vows were so uh, such a scandal for consciences at the time of the Reformation for a couple of reasons. The first was that it was seen as superfluous to what God had already re- required of Christians in the Holy Scriptures, right? Why do we need extra vows on top of that? Second of all, the vows that were commending a kind of life that was certainly by their own definition, not for everybody. You still need people to fight and to rule. You still need people to labor in the field and to work, right? And you can't have everybody committed 100% of the time to praying, you know? And so there were people being forced into this praying lifestyle before they were ready, even when they were children. I, in one of the, uh, the chapters of St. Benedict's Rule, there's provision made for infants being given into the monastic life, even though later on some of the canons of the church try to loosen it up and say that, well, there are two different traditions of canon. One canon said that you cannot take these three oaths to take on this sacred lifestyle until you're 15 years old. And then later on, a little bit later on, another tradition of canon came about and said that you cannot take these oaths and mean them and for them to be binding on you until you're 18 years old. And here's the worst scandal of all that we have to mention. We can't leave this article without talking about this and saying that this is the main reason why the vows were offensive to the Lutherans. It was because according to Roman doctrine at that time, the vows were equal to baptism in how grace was conveyed to a human being, if not greater than baptism. And a a citation should be made to Thomas Aquinas, who I very much respect and love and appreciate. Yet nevertheless, he himself lived this kind of sacred lifestyle. He himself was someone who considered himself impoverished and chaste and obedient, right? And when he was talking about the spiritual benefits of joining a monastic style of life, he said that entering into this life is the same as baptism. Why is that? It's because apparently, according to Daniel chapter 4, verse 24, I tried to check the reference on this. It didn't quite match up. (laughs) But according to Daniel chapter 4, verse 24, you're able to redeem yourself through the giving of alms. Now, what is the price for a man's soul? Presumably, you could give like $500 and you've made up for some of yourself, but not for all of yourself. You could give up even your own life, but is that still sufficient to atone for your own sin? You know, I I mean, I would ask that question, but apparently the idea here is that, yes, if you actually give your own life to complete an absolute service to God in praying 
100% of the time, in being obedient, chaste, and impoverished 100% of the time, then this, this holocaust, this whole burnt offering of yourself is sufficient for redemption. And it gives a kind of confidence and salvation that those who are baptized but had not taken the monastic vows, these spiritual vows, that they would not have, right? And so it is for this confidence that many of these vows were forced on people. And people who came to their priest or to an abbot and said that I desire to become godly, instead of people being pointed to the promises of the gospel, they were pointed to this life of impoverishment, chastity, and obedience, of forsaking all, even a family, even the bonds of husband and wife were to be sundered in two for the sake of this spiritual life, which was to give a greater confidence in one's salvation. Now, we pointed out before that there are oaths <laughs> that we even make our confirmants take in the church, right? Now, what's really funny about the confirmation oaths, and one of the reasons why confirmation can sometimes be confusing, is if you look very closely at the oaths, nothing is there that you won't find in baptism. <laughs> nothing is there that you won't find in the renunciation of the devil and of the world that you have in baptism. Uh, because we have a Lutheran school here at Emmanuel Roswell, Many of the kids who are baptized are of an age where they can actually speak and understand the renunciations of the devil and his works and his ways and his influence of the world, right? And so for them, it's really interesting. Confirmation becomes a bit redundant, you know, whereas uh, for those of us who are baptized as infants, I have no memory of, you know, these renunciations of the world that were spoken by my sponsors and my parents. And yet I know that they were spoken. And so for that reason, it was very meaningful for me when I had come to an age where I could understand what these renunciations of, of Satan in the world meant and an opportunity to speak those baptismal renunciations before the whole body of Christ. The difference between those kinds of oaths to forsake all and even to submit oneself to death before you fall away from Christ at his word, the main difference between those kinds of promises and the promises that are being spoken of here is that the promises associated with baptism are given by God, right? And God is the one who gives us the theology of baptism, the understanding of baptism. And he says, Jesus says this in John chapter 3, that one cannot see nor enter into the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and the Spirit, right? St. Peter also says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that baptism now saves you. Uh, when the people were cut to their hearts, on the day of Pentecost, when they came to the knowledge of their sin, that they themselves were responsible for the crucifixion of the Son of God. And they said, what must we do? What did St. Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And this promise is for you and your children. You know, And so this is what baptism does to us. This is what baptism does for us, the kind of grace given us in baptism right? God makes a promise concerning us. He says, you are mine. You belong to me. I am your God. I am your savior. I am your redeemer. Your sins are cleansed through this blessed washing away. And so the renunciations that we make in confirmation are in conformity. Uh, it's a kind of repetition of the things that God is already saying to us in baptism and in the words of the gospel, right? And so that's why we say that these vows are not from the earth. These vows are not from men, but instead the vows that are spoken on, on the day of confirmation are from God himself. And they're nothing more than what every Christian should be able to say every single day of his or her life. 
Isn't that right, Sean? I mean, you have to be able to say every day of your life that you're willing to forsake all and to suffer all, even death itself, for the sake of Christ, right? Absolutely. And if I may interject, too, what you're spelling out is the words that we actually use, right, are I do by the grace of God. Yes, thank you. Thank <laughs> which you. Is, which, is, which is really key in the whole thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I point that out with the compromise, too. Like, I'll say to them, because I, I spend quite a bit of time on the, on the oaths, so that we understand from whence they came, right? And why we're speaking them. And also to say, according to human flesh and the effort of our own will, this is impossible. Which is why when we make these promises, we commend ourselves to God and the help of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Interestingly enough, the same sort of point is made in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the same article. Philip Melanchthon will mention that, of course, we strive towards Christian perfection in this life. Of course we do. But instead of being like the monks who commend ourselves to our own strength and effort, right? We commend ourselves to God and the help of the Holy Spirit, trusting in his help to make us godly and finally to perfect us, not so much in the perfection and the attainment of Christian life on this side of the grave, but in fact, we attain that true Christian life free of the flesh in death. That's when baptism becomes complete, right? That's finally when we're separated from the world. Not in making a Lutheran commune in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. I know that's very tempting. Everybody wants to live under the shadow of a mountain to have like a field of corn and and like a parish there where everybody on the membership list actually comes to church on Sunday, this sort of thing. (laughs) I know how compelling that can be to think of such an idealistic community. But in fact, that kind of separation from the world is not promised to us except in baptism when it is completed in death. And when soul is rent from the body, the body rests in the grave awaiting the resurrection and the soul finally gains peace and victory with Christ there in the presence of God, the angels and the saints. So therefore, Lutherans make a distinction between oaths that come from men, oaths that from men try to supplant the righteousness of Christ with our own man-made righteousness of obedience to various rules and regulations. And we separate those oaths from the oaths that God requires that he makes possible based on his own institutions, right? And the first and most important of those promises are the promises associated with baptism. Like I said before, God makes a promise about you in baptism and in response and by the grace of the Holy Spirit implanted in your heart through baptism, you also say to God, not only have you made you yourself my God, I am now yours. I am your beloved child, right? That's what you're saying when you're renouncing devil and all of his works and all of his ways, right? You're saying to the Lord that I belong to you because you have made yourself my Savior, my Lord, in this holy sacrament of baptism. Uh, The second place where we could see that God organizes life and requires oaths in this world is in, in marriage, in the family, right? In the fourth and sixth commandments, we see how importantly, or how important the marital and the familial estate are to God. They're so important to God that he dedicates two commandments to them, right? And the fourth commandment is that pivotal commandment between the first table of the law, which concerns our love towards God, and the second table of the law, which concerns our love towards our neighbor. And so God says, look, you are a child in this world, and you were given life through the means of your parents. Therefore, you ought to render them all due honor and respect. In the sixth commandment, we learn that mothers and fathers are to be faithful to one another and true to one another till death parts them. Marriage in this world is defined by God, right? And God requires this faithfulness to be expressed on the part of the husband towards the wife, 
and on the part of the wife towards the husband, right? <laughs> kind of like what Adam did when he first saw Eve. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, you know? And with those words, he commits himself for life to this woman, and they become the one flesh through which God gives you know, the propagation of life of the human species to the world, right? God be praised for that. Uh, the other place where we see God requiring oaths in this world is through the civil estate, that is in government. I think it's really important. If you're a parent and you have little kids at home, if the, you ever have a chance like on TV to watch the inauguration of a president or even the swearing in of a Congress or of senators, uh, if you have the opportunity to witness the swearing in of judges, and other office holders, even within your own city, take advantage to show your kids this and to say, this is something that God is doing. God is the one who rules over this world through these institutions. And this gives you an opportunity to talk about Romans chapter 13, that it is according to God's will that they hold these positions of authority to preserve order, right? To punish wickedness, to reward virtue. And because they are under God, they are required to swear solemn oaths to hold those offices of judge, magistrate, congressman, senator, president, and even to someone who is going to bear you know, a weapon in defense of the citizens of a realm, that person also swears an oath, like a member of the military. He swears to be to, in the, here in the United States, right? We swear allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, not to a man in particular, which is really interesting in and of itself. <laughs> they swear an oath to an order of things, not necessarily to a person. That's kind of cool. Anyways, uh, you swear this oath in the sight of God and publicly so that everybody understands that you have been given this office, not of your own volition, not of your own will, right? You're not coming up with your own sort of commitment to doing things the right way. Instead, God, through the orders of this world, has sought you out and has put this obligation upon you. And you're saying that I recognize that this is being done and I'm doing this in my own free will as well, right? And so for that reason, when you see a policeman carrying a weapon, you can distinguish him between, you know, somebody who's carrying out God's authority in this world versus like a bandito or a robber or a brigand because he's wearing an, a uniform and the uniform is a symbol of his office, the office that he holds that he's even sworn promises to be faithful to. And so I kind of separate godly oaths in this world into three different places. The first place being the church, that we have the oaths associated with baptism. And also you have the oaths, and we won't talk about this, but it would also be appropriate here to say that there are oaths that are required, that God requires of the men that he places into the office of preaching. There's a distinct office in the church from those who are baptized in hearers. And so for that reason, they promise to preach only the word of God and not their own opinions or something like that, right? The second place where God requires oaths are in the family, especially between husbands and wives, that they commit to be true and faithful to one another. And then in the third place is in civil society. When you enter into a public office, God requires that you promise in his sight and in the sight of other people to remain true and faithful to that office, using it for the punishment of evil and for the rewarding of virtue and not for your own personal selfish ends, right? Now, I suppose, and this is an argument I've had with other theologians, I suppose there's room for us to come up with other kind of promises and oaths from time to time uh, to say that, you know what, we should make certain men commit to praying at a certain hour of the day using these specific words to always carrying a crucifix and having on their person a piece of theological literature. 
this would be helpful for them because it would be a natural outpouring of what they had already promised in baptism, that is to renounce worldliness. And what we mean by that not is, isn't so much cutting yourself off from the world, but to live in such a way that you don't fear, love, and trust in the world above all things, right? Uh, you're keeping your hearts pure from idolatry in that way. It could be that we have freedom to come up with a society like that and oaths like that. But as Lutherans especially, we should be very careful that those oaths, whatever else they do, they do not supplant what God has done for you in baptism and the grace that he has given you in baptism, right? I mean, that's the whole issue of the Lutherans right here. They want to make sure that when they are criticizing monasticism, that the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, understands that they're not attacking it just because they don't like the way the monks look or the way they smell or the way they chant or something like that. No, they hate the way that their oaths have separated them, by, according to their pride, away from what God wants to give every single baptized Christian. That is the full assurance of salvation, right? These monks and nuns think that by remaining faithful to these oaths that separated them from the rest of the body of Christ, that they somehow gain a special spiritual status that is beyond that of the baptized. That is antithetical to what Christ has instituted in his gospel, right? In the giving of baptism to the church, right? It's really interesting. We were just talking about this at our catechism camp at Lutheran Valley Retreat last month. Wolfmuller was there and some other great pastors. And one of the things that we meditated on with the kids there was that here is Jesus after the resurrection. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What is he going to do with this great heavenly authority and might and power? He's going to give baptism to the church. It is going to give baptism to sinners in the world to rescue them out of this captivity to the devil to give them a citizenship in heaven. And he does this from sheer grace, not because of anything that you are or anything that you have done, right? And so if anything competes with that, any sort of man-made institution, man-made oaths, man-made promises, if anything takes the glory and the honor that are due to Christ and the justification that he has wrought for you through his death and his resurrection, we must flee those things, whether they be monastic vows or anything else. And I think that's the really good principle for us, especially as we understand that this flows forth from God's word and promises. And that's when we desire to form intentional Christian community of a sort, right? Not to escape from the world. And that's obviously the issue with all of these abuses that the Lutherans are taking up here is you're basically saying you can save yourself by doing this, right? <laughs> and it never works, right? I mean, that's that's exactly what they hit on right here. You know, like, yeah, it was a free association. It was fine. It was good. You know, they'll even say in there that, uh, you know, it started as training for the schools and everything. So, yeah, if you want to start a school in Wyoming, absolutely. I'm on board with that. Actually, I am a supporter of it. Right. And, I and give money fine. to them, too. I'm all for it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's definitely great. But what happens within humanity, right, and our corrupted nature is that, you know, eventually we, we start to see, wait, this thing isn't quite working the way we intended it to. 
Why? Because we're sinners and we make a mess of things, right? <laughs> and so what's the human answer for that all the time? Well, we have to double down on this all the more. And so we institute all these vows as if like we're going to, yes. and I love what they say there, we're going to restore discipline <laughs> through these vows. That's right. That's exactly where the formalization of vows came from. That's exactly where the formalization of these various monastic rules came from. Somebody said, well, they're not being as pure as they ought to be, so we need to double down and we'll try to govern them not just through three distinct vows, but now through a whole order that regiments their day strictly, right? But it never works, right? And then ultimately, it is not through the propagation of the law that men become righteous in this world, right? But it is, as you mentioned earlier, Sean, it is through the help of the Holy Spirit, which is our gift in and through the gospel and through our daily meditation on the law, right? Not on a special spiritual law that's for a special spiritual class of people beyond the run-of-the-mill Christians, but we're talking about a daily meditation on the Ten Commandments. And the fact that the kind of life, the kind of lifestyle that God finds pleasing is in fact a life and community in the world. It is a life in family in the world. It is a life in obedience to civil authority in this world, right? And it's probably even a life that's in day-to-day -day contact with sinners in this world. Because let's face it, St. Basil had a point. You cannot practice charity unless you are with other people in the world, right? You cannot have an opportunity to forgive those who hate you unless you surround yourself with those who hate you, you know? Uh, that's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did in their efforts to, to evangelize the world and to show people the light and the grace of Christ. And that's what we ought to do as well. That's why our, our Christian churches, our congregations are for the most part in the towns, right? They are in the cities. They're in these communities. We're not trying to get away from people. Instead, we're trying to be in and with the people. We are not of the world. We're of Christ. We are born anew through holy baptism. Absolutely. God be praised for that. But that doesn't mean that we should be different and separate from the world in such a way that we never see other people who aren't Christian, that we never do business with them, that we never have friendly conversations with them. Instead, we should see, just like we saw Jesus doing in the gospel, how Jesus was content to welcome sinners and to eat with them. <laughs> you know, imagine the spiritual taint that the Pharisees thought that Jesus had was heaping up on his own head when he welcomed these tax collectors and prostitutes into his presence. You know, but why was he doing that? He was doing that so that he could preach to them the message we all need to hear and to learn, to repent, to believe the gospel for the salvation of our souls. Absolutely. That's where we got to wrap up today, unfortunately. And Apologize to our listeners if you're disappointed that we didn't do what we always do on this show, which is read through and discuss this Lutheran confession of our faith. But I just knew that there was no way we were going to be able to have this conversation, which I think is a very helpful conversation. I think we were able to go really deeply into some really important things here today. We just couldn't do that if we were just reading the text. It was just going to take up too much of our time. So thank you to Pastor Brian Flammy for joining us for Concord Matters Day and teaching us this Lutheran Confession on Monastic Vows from Article 27 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us again today, Pastor Flammy. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. And next week, we'll take a look at Article 28 on Church Authority. And we also want to thank our underwriter, Wicking Vicar. Check out their performance clerical wear at wickingvicar.com. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.